Hello, everyone. This is Chad, and you're listening to Mission Daily. In today's episode, I interview John Shreve from MCG Health. John has a fascinating career. He started as an actuary, and he transformed himself into a healthcare expert and entrepreneur. In this episode, John talks about his company and some of his philosophies on leadership and culture building and so much more. Additionally, we talk about hiring, remote work, as well as competitive Scrabble. Let's jump into today's episode. Today's thank you for sponsorship and world-class products and services goes out to Trinet. I'm the founder of a media business and I need all the help and organization I can get. One of the biggest problems I've faced in the past is HR. I say past because I'm not facing it anymore. I educated myself and got the team at Trinet on my side. Trinet and their expert team help us at mission with our payroll, benefits, and compliance. Trinet offers full-service HR solutions tailored to your industry. So educate yourself and get the HR help you need. Whether your team is 10 people or 1,000, Trinet has you covered. Check out Trinet for your HR needs today. John, welcome to the show. Thank you. So, John, when people ask about you and your role at MCG Health, how do you describe that? So, MCG itself is a company which produces care guidelines where we have a staff of doctors go through hundreds of thousands of articles of evidence and say, this is the appropriate thing to do in in this situation. And we connect the payers and the hospitals in the country around these guidelines. So we're kind of the independent voice between the two of them as they are trying to make those decisions. And my role is president. And and when you say independent voice... I don't know if I have deeper description. No, that, that's okay. That's all good. I think what's interesting is you use the phrase independent voice. Why is that so important for all the stakeholders here that there be an independent voice in this arena? because they won't, in effect, they don't trust each other. So they, they're willing to trust us because we're not aligned with either side. And in fact, we write our guidelines specifically with the patient at the center. So we say, what is the most appropriate thing for the patient? And both sides have agreed that what we have said is something they're willing to use in that conversation. If we take a look back at how you got started and how you kind of got to your role at MCG. You were at uh, Mamillion before this. And I'm just curious, how did this, the trajectory of your career get going? Have you always been interested in health? I know you're, you know, you're doing a lot of actuarial work at Mamillion. Where did the inspiration for all this come from? So I'll start and I'll say it's Milliman. Milliman, that, sorry. Uh, yeah. So I, I am an actuary by training and spent, you know, five years into my career, moved into Milliman and and for and stayed there for 25 years we are you know we were i'm not sure how you say it they are a an actuarial consulting firm so they work with people who are taking risk in the healthcare area and others as well but that was the area that i was in and so i've really been in healthcare actuarial pretty much my whole career except for mcg so Inside of Milliman, another actuary, Dave Axine, was consulting with HMOs and figured out that he needed to help them figure out how to deliver care more efficiently, not just what the risks associated were. And he started hiring clinicians. And those clinicians 
while the, he meant to have them be consultants, instead they went and started building the care guidelines that we have today. And we had an event, and there's a longer story with it, but in 2001, in which a number of other partners within Milliman purchased the guidelines from Dave and three partners he had. And we, you know, at that point, set up an investor board and I became chairman. And then about six years later, due to some management issues, I said I, I take on the CEO role. And at that time, it was a part-time basis because I was also running my consulting practice in Denver and a num- number of other things for Milliman. Uh, and so then I gradually sure. increased my role over time until 2012 when we decided we were moving that part of Milliman outside and joined Hearst Corporation at the end of 2012. And at that point, I sold the rest of my practices within Milliman and became full-time CEO of now what's called MCG. Sure. So when it comes to the scope of the problem that you're you're tackling, how do you think about this market and what is the total addressable market here? Well, the total addressable market, let me start with, with the size of the problem. So the, the problem is within the United States, there are significant variations in how care is delivered, which cannot be, that cannot be all evidence-based. It's more based upon practice patterns in different parts of the country and even within an area, doctor to doctor, hospital to hospital. And People have done estimates that say of the total healthcare spending, about 30% is unnecessary. Maybe 15 to 20% of that is is inappropriate variations in care. And so, what we're trying to do is help squeeze that out of it. And you know, our own we work with about 70 to 80% of the payers in the country, about 35 to 40% of the hospitals in the country, helping them with that problem as well as some more workflow issues where the whole prior authorization process has gotten out of hand and it needs to have some simplification to it. And we're working heavily in that area as well. And when it comes to, you know, winning such, I mean, this is a pretty large portion of the market. How do you think MCG, you know, why has it been so successful in winning such a large portion of the market? How did you go about that? So we, we have one primary competitor called Interqual. I would say, so a lot of it has been between the two of us. We started more on the payer side, more, and payers need to answer the question, what is the right care for this patient? Because if they answered it from any other point of view, they wouldn't be able to hold that up. And so we started by answering that question. Interqual started on the hospital side, and they started with the question, how do I justify payment for the care that I've, that I've delivered? Now, over time, I'd say we've evolved to something closer to each other, but that underlying side is still there. And the depth and breadth of the research that our clinical staff does, I think, is the key differentiator from them. And so people see the so when I say they look at hundreds of thousands of articles for the edition that we're about to release in a week, it's an annual edition. The uh, clinical staff started with about 300,000 pieces of medical literature. They specifically pulled, forget the number right now, but it's in the 30,000 range for review. And 7,000 of those articles became new references within our guidelines. And it's that... Uh, you know, that that level of confidence people have in our guidelines 
that I think really distinguishes us. What does that evolution of guidelines mean for the future of healthcare? Like, I'm very curious to know, what do you see over the next maybe five years that MCG is doing now? How is that going to lead to better patient outcomes? At the core, unnecessary care causes patient harm. If you don't need an intervention, then you're just exposing yourself to risk by having that intervention. And the reduction in in the amount of care delivered, you know, and there's sometimes where it's, you know, underutilization as well as overutilization, but getting to that correct point is the thing that gets you to the sort of optimal care delivery point. And that's something that is hard to pick out and say, they're right there, we did that. But if you look at a long-term trend over 30 years, there's significant change in the practice patterns, all positive, almost all positive, uh, that is helping get to a place where we don't have unnecessary interventions as often as we used to. And even you can see it in, in the measurement of how many hospital days per thousand people that are being used. And I, I remember when I first started out of college in the actuarial work, we were seeing numbers that said like 600 days per thousand. Now we're in the 150 to 200 range. So there's general trend in the country that I think we contributed to, but we're not by any means primarily responsible for that says, let's continue to, to rationalize what the appropriate care is. So guidelines are a necessary part, but not a sufficient part to get you to a place where you can help identify and control that variation. And when it comes to the healthcare industry more broadly, I think many of our listeners are wondering, just like I guess everyone is, you know, what's going on with healthcare? Why does it seem to be getting more expensive? Is there any comment or kind of story you like to tell about why this is the case? Yeah. So first off, I'd say we don't focus as much on the specific cost of one intervention versus another. That's part of the way we stay more independent. However, my personal opinion is the key driver of healthcare becoming so expensive is other people's money. So if you only have to pay a small portion of your bill and feel entitled to whatever care is there, then in turn, providers feel entitled to be paid for that. And you can see that most obviously today on the pharmaceutical side, where you can make the justifications for charging $100,000 a month for a particular drug. But in reality, the laws are set up in a fashion that payers have a tough time doing anything but paying for it when that comes up. They'll look at authorizing it, but there are laws that say if it's FDA approved, then there has to be something that the the payers are approving for that drug. There's no pressure on the pharmaceutical companies to set a low price for that because there's not the typical marketplace trade-off that there is in most other goods and services. The other place you see that, by the way, is education. So the cost of schools have gone up and up and up. And and in that case, it's more on the student loan side, but it's other people's money allows A, people to spend more in the first place, and B, allows the people who are the recipients of the money that's being spent more and more to feel entitled to that money. And then that drives drives it further. And like I said, yeah, that's my personal opinion, not, not that of MCG. <laughs> sure, definitely. Well, that caveat yeah, is important there. So when it comes back to MCG, though, are there any recent accomplishments that you have been able to make as CEO and as a company 
that you're really proud of that you like to talk about? Yeah. So overall, we are in a mode where we're continually addressing the issues that are coming up. And actually, we're in the process right now of releasing three new products, and we've been working on them for several years. So so the first one is one which gives a connection between the payer and provider so that you know the primary mode of authorization right now is the uh, fax machine, which is like the only place in the world that still uses fax. And, you know, so it used to be it was phone and fax hell, and then payers started introducing portals, but that made it phone and fax and portal hell. And we have a, a solution now, collaborative care, where people who are documenting our guidelines at the hospital will be able to push a button, and that episode that they've documented will go straight to the payer payer can often apply rules automatically and give an approval immediately if the, if the right conditions exist. So that connection is important. That's one thing. The second thing is one in which we're reading the coding that's in the electronic medical record to help identify the guideline that and the indications that is appropriate for that patient. And again, using more automation to document that rather than having this a very heavy human process. And the third thing that we're working on for a little later this year is something that's helping the case manager figure out and using machine learning to help the case manager figure out what's the most important thing for her to do next inside the hospital. Yeah, that seems like that would be a lead domino for many other positive spillover effects. So, John, not too many actuaries become... CEOs, or maybe you could argue that every CEO needs to have some actuarial knowledge in order to remain one. But yeah, how did you make that transition from such a mathematical focused role to more of a leadership and culture building role? Gradually, <laughs> would be the short <laughs> answer. But the, uh, you know, so inside of Milliman, first five years, I was a consultant. After that, I started my own practice. So I moved from Philadelphia to Denver. In Denver, started my own practice and through that, a smaller group sort of learned what was important in running the practice as opposed to just the elements of the consulting and the actuarial work, which I'd been doing before that point. And then different leadership opportunities developed inside of Milliman. We uh, purchased an actual consulting practice in Brazil, which I was leading for a while. We uh, built some other products. So there were there were things going on. So then when we got to the point of uh, me moving from chairman to CEO of the guidelines, I was comfortable enough that I could do it. And at the same time, if I look back at myself back in 2007, you know, comfortable enough for the role. And I was just starting to to figure out what it takes. And so it was, you know, years of, of learning and making mistakes and, and getting us to where we are today. Hey everybody, we're taking a time out to thank Trinet for sponsoring independent media like Mission Daily. If there's one thing I am about, and in fact, one thing the whole mission team is about, you know it's accelerated learning. One way I do that is by learning from the best. When it comes to learning about HR, the team and resources Trinet provides are my go-to source. Just this week, Trinet published a blog and webinar series to help small and medium-sized businesses manage the impact of COVID-19. It covers actions you can take to be prepared should one of your employees test positive for coronavirus. It also covers other factors you should consider, including employee compensation, if your business is required to shut down due to the pandemic. There's lots happening now in real time. 
go to Trinet.com and get the information you need to protect your business. Trinet will continue to post the latest as recommendations as legislation is changing on a daily basis. When you were kind of building your learning around this area and getting some good feedback loops going, were there any mentors or resources, whether they're, they were an investor, board member, or maybe a person in the industry you admire that were really crucial in giving you some advice or help along the way? Yeah, so I would say it came from two directions. So one was we had the board there and I was still a member of the board. And that group, at least at that time, was working quite collaboratively. And I would certainly have a feedback loop from them as to some of the things that are more important. Probably more importantly, I learned from my staff and listening to them and hearing what was important to them. I I got more there than I did did anyplace else. And when it comes to taking feedback and soliciting feedback from your staff and your teams, are there any you know, recommendations or what's your philosophy there? How do you go about getting that feedback? It was something that that'd be one of the things I learned gradually. So there was a time back in my consulting practice where I asked, you know, smaller. So I asked uh, one of the admins to collect 360 degree feedback for me from the whole practice. And then I, I received that and I decided I'm going to call a meeting and share what people have told me. Started out and there was something that was less favorable, maybe about sarcasm or something. And and uh, <laughs> and I put that up and I read that. And I said, yeah, I can see that in me. And and what she told me, the admin who put it together later was, she says, says up until, you know, you called the meeting and everyone was sort of tense. and like, what is this going to be? Why is he doing it so far? And then when you said, yeah, I can see that in me, she said, I could see everybody relax. And in the end, it's being open and vulnerable to that feedback, because if you're not, you're not going to get it. And if you don't say, you know, if you don't listen to it and thank people for it, it's not going to be there. And it's something that, that I work on somewhat for myself. Maybe I don't do enough of it right now as I think about it, but uh, and for the whole company to say, how do we get the feedback loops that are other than manager employee? Because a feedback loop that's your coworkers reinforces the idea that you're working for each other, not not just for your boss. Uh, and that that in turn builds strength in the overall culture. And when you start to look at cultural strengths, are there any other key ones that you like to point out or that you think MCG has? MCG has evolved to a very strong culture. And I'd say we started from a place, and this is some of my learnings, where the executive team was not working together well, and that was not a strong point for us, and it really reverberated throughout the whole company. We now are in a place where the executive team is working much better together, and you can feel that reverberate through the whole company as well. And we had a committee that looked at our culture last year, and the top, you know, if there's one word that would describe our culture, it would be collaboration. And if there's one thing I hear from a new employee after they start is everybody here is so nice. And what they mean by that is whenever they ask for help, people are ready and willing to to help them out and get them going. And the sort of the cross-functional nature of a lot of what we do requires that cross-functional work. And I would say there's always issues of silos, but I'd say that's a pretty strong feature that the silos are not as strong there because of that collaboration. Yeah. And just being able to ask for what you need, I think, in any environment, very liberating. So that's a a major cultural advantage. When you are 
looking out to the future, I'm sure you're not just, you know, preoccupied with a quarterly mindset. When you think beyond the quarterly mindset into, you know, the next year, maybe the next five or 10 years, what type of innovations at MCG or maybe the industry as a whole are you most excited about? Yeah, I would say for us, it's supplementing the evidence that we currently have with you know, you could say machine learning, you could say real world evidence, but the traditional evidence that we use for things is very important. And there are many situations that good evidence doesn't exist about. So how do you supplement that? And I think we're going to continue building on our data strength, which is something we have still, you know, we still have a partnership back with Milliman to help us build that overall data side of what we're doing. And we see that really building over time. We also see further improvement in this overall authorization process that's uh, really become a, a huge cost on the industry right now, as well as you know the side where if you get the payer provider battle out of things, you can be even more effective in in helping a group of of members or patients to achieve achieve their end, and so. That's one that I see more as the industry change, that that we're going to move to this side more of value-based care. And as we do it, I think it benefits the patients and it benefits the overall pocketbook side of it as well. Right. And what are some questions that you wish that maybe consumers and folks that are receiving healthcare is there, are there any questions that we could help ask physicians to kind of move that needle to help the amount and quality of evidence speed up, if that makes sense? Like, you know, what could consumers be doing better to help reinforce this kind of flywheel that you have spinning? Yeah, I'm not sure if, if consumers have, a, have an ability to directly influence evidence. I think they have a great ability to get better information as they're making a decision. And I think that's actually remains a challenge. And, and I think that is, I should have put that on the list of things that we need to face going forward. But one of our, our editor-in-chief, he's now retired, but he used to say to me, gee, if you have lower back pain, the following four interventions all have roughly equal outcomes. Bed rest, <laughs> physical therapy visits, chiropractic visits, and surgery. Right. And if the if you as a patient know that, you can make a much better decision than if you're talking to a surgeon who says, "Ah, I can help you by doing the surgery," definitely, uh, and figuring out how to get that information into the hands of patients in a fashion that they trust is a challenging point because there's so much information out there that, you know, how do you know this is, you know, this information versus that, you know, and doctors bemoan the people who come in with piles of articles they've Googled and how do I help them if they think they have all of this, this information already. And it's pretty important to have that information as a patient. So it's uh, definitely, are there any companies or institutions in the space that you feel are doing a really good job of providing high quality informations to help folks make better decisions? For instance, recently talked to Maeve, who's the CEO of Castlight Health, and they're doing some interesting work in the space to help get consumers better information. But is there anyone else out there or any other groups that you think are putting out really high quality information? I don't think I know enough there to, to pick a favorite. Sure. And 
when it comes to other researchers, maybe so like Dr. Eric Topol, he's been a guest on the show before. Is there anyone that you follow to kind of stay abreast on machine learning or industry trends that you think is exciting or or pretty well-versed? You know, I kind of jump around a lot. So again, maybe I don't have one person I'd point out and say that's, you know, I certainly, I think we've had Eric at our at our client forum as well speak. You know, so there's a number of folks out there who uh, who have those pieces, but I, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't have a specific recommendation. No, that's that's all good. Yeah, good answer though. John, when you are thinking about recruiting at the company, recruiting, retention, things of that nature, have there been any philosophies that you've developed that have served you really well? And I'm curious what your what your mental models are there. In general, I would say we tend to hire on the experience side. A lot of the people we hire are former customers who just love what we're doing. And that's and that's a very useful thing to be able to do. With time, we have just our glass door rating has been high enough that that people are comfortable coming to work with us based upon that. So that's been very helpful for us. Our biggest challenge is hiring software developers in Seattle with Amazon sitting down the street. You know, and and we've worked on that. One of the ways we did it was we were starting to get to different locations so that it's we don't have to hire everybody in Seattle. So we we opened an office in Denver to build out some of our uh, software talent as well. Is there anything you're doing in terms of remote work or are you thinking about, you know, culture building primarily from the office? Uh, what are your thoughts there? Well, I'll start by saying that half of our staff is remote, and but it's more by job function. So anything that's more either client facing or research, the clinical staff is pretty much remote. So our account managers, our clinical educators, our salespeople, our editors, all remote. And that's, I think, helped us a lot in terms of attracting those folks. We haven't as much focused on it from a software point of view, because we do see the value in the teams that are working together to have them in the same space together. And I think we need to continue to evolve thinking about what's going to attract people most into those into those spaces. If there's one common attraction point is is the mission itself of the company and people are are very happy coming for that mission and coming for our culture and that combination seems to be our our biggest recruiting tool. Yeah, I think with the, you know the current and previous states of healthcare there are going to be more folks than ever that have this intrinsic motivation to kind of fix the system. So, yeah, it's definitely an exciting future there. John, when it comes to outside of work, are you able to find any work-life balance or do you just have the two thoroughly integrated? Any advice or tips that you have there? I am in the integrate camp. So I'm, I have the work-life balance and I do it by not putting, you know, hard dividing lines, but being comfortable moving in and out of, of work and, and non-work activities. And, and actually the one, my big pastime is I'm a competitive Scrabble player. So I have times that I carve, I do carve out for that because whether it's a club in Denver or Seattle or a tournament that I'm playing in, that, that takes my full focus. So I make sure I have that time and then, and then outside of that sort of let things ebb and flow. And because I came from a model in Milliman of being more of an owner, I was comfortable with that going back and forth and don't feel the need to draw the lines. In fact, I think that would make both sides harder. 
Is there some type of secret advantage that actuaries have to playing Scrabble? How are you approaching this game? Are you approaching it from a mathematical perspective? Yes, and my competitors are as well. So the, uh, <laughs> the experts in Scrabble are generally of a mathematical background as opposed to a word background. Right. So the way to think of Scrabble is it's a mathematical game with the dictionary as a rule book as opposed mm-hmm. to it being a, a word game. And at least that's what it is as you get to the upper echelons of the Scrabble, Scrabble playing. It makes, yeah, it makes sense. How did that passion develop and how did you kind of find that hobby that was, you know, that serves you well, that allows you to recharge and do something outside of work? It's sort of lifelong. So growing up in our family, my father's a mathematician. We are games players quite a bit, especially my brother and I. In high school, I entered some chess tournaments. And in college, I entered some bridge tournaments. And then just a few years out of college, I entered my first Scrabble tournament and kind of got hooked there. And I've been focused on that and realized that focusing on one game is going to allow me to do better at it than if I jump around among them. So I've been I've been at this for 30 plus years. Are there any advances with machine learning that kind of worry you about the future of Scrabble? Is it going to turn to a Go type situation or how far away do you think we are before it turns into Go territory? It, Scrabble is, you know, unlike chess and Go, it has the probabilities associated with it. So it's it just because you make a play, there's not a deterministic path to the end of the game like there is in chess and Go. And the computer advances, you know, the first advantage the computer has is perfect knowledge of the dictionary. And then beyond that, the, people have actually had a challenge trying to get to, you know, that there are some good computer programs that play pretty well, especially as you get closer to the end of the game. But that overall board vision, it's been harder to program in. And I think in the end, the fun, you know, even if a computer figures out this is the optimal play, you know, the fun is in playing another human. So I don't, I don't think it's going to come up with a, a game changing conclusion about how it should be played. I like it. So John, when you are fully unplugged from work and you're not playing Scrabble, are you reading? Are you hanging out with your family? What else are you doing to recharge to kind of keep your, you know, your mental health and your focus sharp when you are at work? Yeah, I, th- I think it's a lot of hanging out at home, some reading, some ongoing, even when I'm not playing Scrabble, I'm making sure I, I know my dictionary well. Um, <laughs> uh, some exercise, some, you know, pieces of that. Yeah. So I think that's, that's more of my home life. It's, it's kind of quiet. I like that. And what is some of the best advice that you've ever received? It could be from a parent. It could be from a colleague, one of your team members. What's really stuck with you over the years? Hmm. I'm trying to even think of where it came from, but I've been using it a lot lately. One one piece of advice is pigs eat at the trough and hogs get slaughtered. <laughs> and, and when people are making decisions, I kind of try and pull them back a little and say, are you being too greedy in what you're doing here and helping them think about how to make a decision? I actually realized there's the chairman of Hearst Corporation just published a book and it's called Always Leave Something on the Table. And he's effectively saying, you know, when you have a partnership with someone, don't worry about leaving something on the table. In fact, you should, because that's going to build the relationship over the long term more than you winning this particular battle. So you're thinking about the long term relationship more than you are the uh, winning at this particular point in time. And I think that serves very well over the long term to think about this. The other one, and 
I'm sorry, I don't have exact references, but I'm figured out over time that, you know, the fewer decisions that I make, the better for the company. Because if I jump in and try and make a decision, then I'm doing their job and that doesn't feel good to them. And it's probably not as good a decision as they would make. Uh, so I'm, I've learned that over time as well. Great advice and wise words. John, this has been an awesome interview. Thanks so much for being generous with your time. Is there a final story, challenge, call to action, or anything you would like to leave our listeners with? I think in the healthcare space, we have to continue to think about it from the standpoint of the patient to make sure that you know each, whether it's a payer or a provider, is not getting so wound up in their own interests that the best thing for the patient does not occur. And it's and as the you know the battles over money go on between those entities, figuring out the way to collaborate and the way to do that is to say, to stop and say what's what's best for the patient. I love it. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. And we will see you next time. Thank you. By now, you know that Trinet is our sponsor for Mission Daily. You know they have amazing full service HR solutions for your business. So what are you waiting for? When you go to trinet.com to get more information, you help support independent media like Mission Daily, and you help support our team here. And you, as a business owner or HR exec, can get top-notch service from the team at Trinet. Stop worrying about HR issues and team up with the best, Trinet. You don't have to go at it alone. Reduce your worry. You need a team, and Trinet is your go-to team for HR. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.